Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Look at a short little narrative titled, Jesus' Call of Matthew. The Calling of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Well, has anyone in here ever heard the name Jim Baker? You familiar with that name? This is Baker with two Ks. Uh, we're not thinking of Ronald Reagan's one-time chief of staff, later George H.W. Bush's secretary of state. No, this was Jim Baker, the televangelist. Anybody in here? Yeah. Husband of Tammy Faye, one-time co-host of that wildly successful show, Praise the Lord Club airing nationally on the Praise the Lord Club network in the late 80s to early to mid 80s, late 70s to early to mid 80s, a little bit before my TV viewing time, at least of that sort of substantive programming. Uh, just to get an idea, if you're unfamiliar with the show or with who Jim Baker was, uh, the success of the show could be measured in one instance by how much it took in in contributions per week. Some estimates uh, relate that it took in something like $1 million per week in viewer contributions. And really at its height, sometime in the late 80s, maybe 1986, it took in an estimated $129 million that year in viewer contributions, reaching an estimated 135 million viewers. Okay, but alongside of the show and the network, the Bakers also started something called Heritage USA. And anybody familiar with this? Yes, I, I've heard somebody say it before they actually visited. Now, this was a family-oriented theme park in South Carolina at one time, according to one report. It was the third most successful theme park in the United States. The Bakers' success, if we look at it objectively, it was remarkable. Remarkable. That is a lot of money. That is a lot of homes to reach into. But while remarkable, the Baker's success, as you well know, perhaps, was also rather short-lived, coming really to a disastrous end in the late 80s when a newspaper in Charlotte uncovered massive financial fraud and moral failure of really the darkest sort. As some reports say, the bakers had been illegally siphoning off money from those contributions, taking them as what they would call personal bonuses, something to the tune of $3.4 million in one instance, from money raised for the never-quite-finished accommodations, timeshares at their South Carolina theme park. Now, as it would turn out, the money was also diverted to what we might call other expenses, in one case, to one Jessica Hahn to keep her from airing publicly what Baker would later call his, quote, sexual indiscretion. Though, of course, if you read about it, Ms. Hahn's testimony is slightly less innocent sounding than that. Really, allegations and uh, crimes of an even tawdrier sort could be listed. In the end, Baker was sentenced to 45 years in federal prison and fined something to the tune of $500,000. But for the record, the charges were later reduced and that fine was dropped. Now, one prominent Christian leader, many of us would know who this is, summed up the sentiments of many, perhaps most of us in this room, when he said this about Baker, quote, 
He is the greatest scab in cancer on the face of Christianity in over 2,000 years of church history. I, I, I would imagine some of us would heartily agree. The greatest scab in cancer on the face of Christianity in its 2,000-year history. Well, one day in early January 1992, something remarkable happened in Baker's life. He had just celebrated his 52nd birthday. He was alone, still in that federal prison cell, having just suffered through some sort of seasonal flu. Guards came to his room, started to direct him to another place in the prison. Baker admits feeling slightly anxious about where he was being taken. He admits being unshowered, unshaven, not feeling up to par. And as it turned out, he realized he was being taken to the warden's office. Not exactly the place you would be hope you would hope to be taken. But when he got sting and really remarkable news, he had a visitor, and this was not just any visitor, it was Billy Graham. Baker recounts that when he saw Graham, Graham opened his arms out wide and embraced him, calling him my friend, passing along a warm greeting from Ruth, Graham's wife, asking about Baker's condition promising that he and Ruth would continue to pray for him and then left the room saying, look, Jim, we're going to continue to pray for you. Now, Baker would later say this about that meeting, quote, I will never forget that the man who had just been voted one of the most influential men in the world, who has ministered to millions of people, took time out of his busy schedule to come minister to one prisoner. Look, amidst my depression, flu, filth, and hopelessness, Billy Graham had come. Baker then goes on to say something extraordinary. I felt that Jesus himself had come to visit me that morning. Now, I'll step to the side and say, admit, okay, this analogy that he draws is imperfect on many levels, okay? Qualification made. This illustration isn't perfect, but I think it nicely illustrates the point of this short narrative that Matthew includes in his gospel. Matthew's autobiographical reflection on when Jesus came and called him to follow him. In this account, we've got a fellow who the world didn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. Not just the world, but the Christian community wanted nothing to do with Jim Baker. After all, look at the unimaginable selfishness of his financial and moral affairs. I mean, this guy was a cancer to be sure. But, okay, but, and catch this, here's the nub. It was to this individual, this cancer, this scab, this embarrassing illustration of fraudulent Christianity that another Christian demonstrated just like Jesus will in our passage this morning, that God... God is radically committed to mercy. Folks, our God is radically committed to mercy. We'll see in this beautiful little account that Jesus had God's priorities just right. He had God's priorities absolutely spot on. Let's look at this ourselves and read Matthew 9, beginning... In verse 9, the calling of Matthew. This is the word of the Lord. 
As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, in this brief vignette, a story about who Jesus calls and has dinner with, we find words of really profound encouragement, but also coupled with it, kind of the razor's edge underneath, penetrating warning. We find in this short story of Jesus' priorities cause to reflect both on Jesus and God's mercy, but also on the lack of mercy exhibited by the Pharisees. So together, briefly this morning, let's reflect on this short narrative And we're just going to, for the outline, we're just going to retrace the contours of this story. We'll look at Jesus' action, the precipitating cause of the conflict that would follow. We'll look at the Pharisees' objection. And then we'll end up by looking at Jesus' response. So we'll look at Jesus' action. We'll say something about the Pharisees' objection. And then we'll look at Jesus' reply. Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. So let's look first at Jesus' action. We see this in verses 9 and 10. We've got Jesus who is coming to his hometown, as Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 says, and that hometown was Capernaum, having returned from ministering in the Gadarene area, returns to Capernaum, and there he sees a tax collector um, sitting perhaps on the major road that ran through that section of Antipas's Galilee and collecting taxes on, on goods as a customs officer, or perhaps collecting these as boats would come in off the shore. As you know, Capernaum was situated on the northwest shore of, Lake Gal- of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes to this one, calls him to follow him, and then Jesus proceeds to have dinner with Matthew and his friends. Now, folks, if we're going to understand what's going on in this text we're going to understand the objection that is soon to follow, we've got to say something about what tax collectors were. You may have a small idea of what they are presently, but tax collectors in the first century were a disreputable lot, to be sure, indeed, to the nth degree. And this is why. Matthew, as I said, was probably a customs official collecting customs on goods that came through, sometimes arbitrarily assigning value to the customs so that he could pad the amount of money that he collected. But these tax collectors also were Jews, and that's not in itself all that bad, but they were Jews that worked for imperial Rome. Look, if you were a Jew, you did not recognize the rights of a foreign power over your sovereign state. So for a Jew to recognize, not only recognize, but to work for Rome was treasonous, was traitorous. They were giving up on Israel's sovereign rights, sovereign jurisdiction, and admitting that Rome did indeed have a right to collect money from them. They were viewed as traitors. But not only that, they were also working for Rome. And these Romans weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. And Gentiles, as Jews would routinely call them, were unclean. 
They didn't participate in the ritual purity that Jews did. So it was assumed that if you worked closely with these individuals, you too had become ritually unclean. You were set aside. You were not to be touched. You could be potentially contaminating yourself. But it's even worse. As we know, perhaps from the little vignette on Zacchaeus, tax collectors made their money by extortion. They would, like I said, assign values that perhaps didn't represent the value of the good they were taxing so they could make more money. In, in other ways, they raised, often raised more money than they should. They, they were social pariahs. These weren't the sort of people, the sort of company that you would expect a teacher, a godly teacher, a righteous teacher like Jesus to be keeping. In fact, as we later find out in Matthew and in, in, in literature just across the first century, tax collectors are often coupled with people like prostitutes. Look at Matthew 21:43 or 21:32. You, you look at that as in cross-reference it later. And then in rabbinic, early Jewish literature, tax collectors are linked with robbers. That's a natural connection to be sure. And then in a Greco-Roman author named Chrysostom, we've got tax collectors being linked with brothel keepers. Perhaps you've got an NLT, a New Living Translation this morning that describes Jesus' dinner guests as tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I think that gets it just about right. These tax collectors, folks, were a disreputable lot. Again, not the sort of company you'd expect a traveling teacher of righteousness to keep. Now, we also should say something about this meal that Jesus participates in in verse 10. A little bit unlike today, where meals are taken without really... um, There's not a lot of significance beyond filling our stomachs with food. Sometimes there is. Oftentimes in America, it's it's just the time to get together to eat. In the first century, though, meals were full of social and religious significance. As the saying went, to share a meal was to share a life. So by eating with this sort of company, Jesus was extending. Jesus was evidencing a sort of intimacy, a sort of friendship. It wasn't just a one-off thing. Let's do lunch. There was something else going on when you ate with people. And then I think this is good. Notice in, in, a la- in verse 10, it says, Jesus, he goes to Matthew's house. He has some dinner, but notice the description of the, of the company that evening. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus that evening. Perhaps Matthew's entire bureau was on the guest list for that dinner party. This place was crawling with sinners. This place was crawling with a company Jesus should not, according to the Pharisees, have been keeping. So that sets us up nicely for the conflict in this story, okay? We've got Pharisees who then object. And what do they say? Well, let's look at verse 11. They say, they see it, and they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he extend friendship to such a motley crew? Now, if we're going to understand this this little story, we've got to understand what's going on in this question that the Pharisees raise. The Pharisees are not asking the question, look, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners and not with us? They weren't upset that they had been given kind of the, the, the ditch on a dinner invitation, left off the guest list. Jesus, why didn't you include us? No, the question the Pharisees are asking would be con- completed with something implicit like this. Jesus, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? We would never be caught doing that sort of thing. Or, 
Jesus, you shouldn't be doing that. If you need some help to know who you should eat with, why don't you come and talk to us for some advice? They are telling Jesus, you've got it wrong. You should follow our example and stay clear of this nasty lot. Now, before then we just fall into the caricature of Pharisees as these unthinking legalists, let me say something to their credit, okay? Who were Pharisees? Were they first century fundamentalists who were all uptight about the sort of clothes one wore, the sort of things one did or did not participate in? Were they your 16th century seller of indulgence that Martin Luther responded to? Who, who were these people? Well, ideally, in the ideal sense, perhaps in the abstract sense, Pharisees were all about, Pharisees were all concerned with getting Israel back to a place where God could bless her. Look, they knew from the Old Testament prophets, from all sorts of indications elsewhere, that Israel was under Roman bondage precisely because Israel had forsaken God. Why did Israel go into exile in the first place in the Old Testament? Because of her idolatry. Throughout the prophets, we've got prophets saying, Zechariah, for instance, look, return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. The Pharisees were about saying, look, if we're going to see God look with favor on Israel, if we're going to get out from under these Roman emperors, if we're going to have our sovereignty back, we're going to have to do better at our own holiness. We're going to have to clean ourselves up. We're going to have to be the sort of person that God would return to. And what better way to do this? What better way to increase in your diligence of holiness than to extend voluntarily throughout all of Palestine the sort of regulations that governed a priest priest when he would uh, minister in God's presence in the temple? If you were to look at Leviticus, we see all these descriptions about when a priest served for his six weeks in God's presence in the temple, there were all these ordinances, strictures that he had to abide by. And the Pharisees said, look, if that's what it takes to be in God's presence, why don't we voluntarily then send this ordinances, extend these uh, structures to all of Israel? So, for instance, when the Pharisees were to talk about who you had dinner with, who you were having table fellowship with, they were going to imbue that with an all-new significance. Table fellowship, eating dinner, was going to take on an entirely other character. It was going to become a sacred event in as much or just the same way as when a priest would minister in God's presence. One dared not eat with, then, for example, unwashed hands. Remember that account in Mark's Gospel? You don't eat with unwashed hands in much the same way that a Levite, a priest, would not go into God's presence Ritually, un- ritually unclean, having not followed those cleanliness ordinances that God had laid out. Okay? Those were the Pharisees. So, when they objected to what Jesus was doing, they would have been saying something like this, Jesus, okay, Jesus, c- come over here. That's not the way to garner God's favor. You're not going to see the kingdom restored to Israel by doing the sort of dinner parties you're doing right now. If if you need some help, Jesus, knowing how you should eat and who you should eat with, why don't you follow our example? And then finally, just a note about the setting. We probably should imagine the Pharisees asking this as they passed by outside. 
they see Jesus. We, we know from the Gospels, they're always lurking around. They've heard things about Jesus, so they're keeping an eye on him. So they're passing by outside. They see this and perhaps whisper a word to one of the disciples reclining against the window in Matthew's house. So we've got Jesus' action. We've got the Pharisees' objection. Both of those make sense. We understand why the Pharisees would react in the way they did. But then let's get really to the heart of it and let's look at Jesus' reply. Let's look at Jesus' reply, for in it we see how he knew precisely what God prioritized. And we begin in verse 12 with a self-evident answer. And then in verse 13, the first part, we'll look at what I'll call a stinging answer. And then the final part of verse 13, we'll see Jesus come to another self-evident answer. So verse 12, a self-evident answer. Look with me. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, Jesus is saying, where is it more likely that you're going to find a doctor? You're going to find it at a healthy person's house or at a sick person's house? It's kind of a duh. I mean, we recognize that. Doctors go to sick people, right? Now, considering what we now know about the Pharisees and what's implied in Jesus' response to them, their likely response to Jesus' question would have been something like this. Yes, of course, doctors go to sick people. Of course, Jesus, doctors go to sick people. But, okay, but there is something more important than dealing with patients, dealing with sick folks. Holiness, purity, ritual cleanliness, which then leads to Jesus' stinger of an answer. Look with me at verse 13a. Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay, Jesus here insists that were he not to eat with this sort of company, were he not to have dinner with this uh, disreputable lot, he'd not be pleasing God, but he'd be displeasing God because he'd be prioritizing ritual purity over mercy. Jesus looks at the Pharisees, yes, but, and responds with, look, there's no exception, no ifs, ands, or buts. If I were to follow your example, I would be misprioritizing mercy subsumed to underneath your ideas of ritual purity. Let's look at this a little more closely. If you've got a Bible that has perhaps a sinner column, or maybe footnotes, you'll notice that when Jesus responds to the Pharisees and says, go and learn, he's quoting from somewhere. Do you see it? Do you see quote marks? Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from the prophet Hosea, one of the minor prophets, one of the 12. He's quoting from Hosea 6.6. And if we were to go back to Hosea and look at this passage, we'd notice that the antithesis, the the, uh I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That antithesis actually is a way to talk about prioritization. In that context, to say, look, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, isn't to say God wouldn't, would have been pleased if Israel just did away with sacrifices. No, it was to say, look, I desire mercy over sacrifice. And that's where I'm getting the language of prioritization. Jesus goes to Hosea, and in Hosea, he finds the language of priorities. God desires mercy over sacrifice. 
further in Hosea, I'll read 6.6, 6, we, we, we read this. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So I desire mercy, not sacrifice, would be our first line. And then the second line of the, of the statement would be an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So sacrifices and burnt offerings are set in parallel. And what they're meant to do is represent all of the sacrificial system. Kind of like you would refer to the, everything created by referring to the two words, heaven and earth. It's a literary term called a merism. So by referring to sacrifices and burnt offerings, God is saying, look, all of that sacrificial system, all of the Levitical codes, all of these things are to be prioritized under mercy. What does that mean for our Pharisees? That means that their practice of ritual purity, which was a subspecies of this larger category called sacrificial code, called Levitical codes, called ceremonial law, all of that was a lesser priority to God than mercy. That's what that parallel in Hosea 6.6 tells us. But finally, in this verse, it's ironic, okay? Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Who, though, is he telling to go and read the Old Testament to? People that didn't know it or people that did? Did the Pharisees know the Old Testament? Yes. They were Israel's top scholars. Jesus responds to their statement, look, Jesus, if you need some help knowing who you should eat dinner with, if you need an inside track on what God wants, why don't you come talk to us? Jesus says, you've got it wrong. In fact, I'll prove it to you from your own book. Jesus tells Israel's top scholars, it's you that has misread the Holy Scriptures. It's you that does not understand what God wants. I know what God prioritizes, and he prioritizes, he values, he loves, he treasures mercy. But this stinging answer gets even more painful because Jesus doesn't simply think, These Pharisees have misplaced priorities. Look, we simply value sacrifice over mercy, but there's something else that is going on in this text. There are a lot of places in the Old Testament that have what this is called a critique, a criticism of sacrifices. Lots of them in the Old Testament. You find them in Psalm 40. You find them again in the text that was read from Psalm 50. You find them throughout the Old Testament. Micah 6 has it. You know, am I, do I want thousands of rams offered to me, et cetera, et cetera? No, I want, and it's usually something to do with a devoted heart, a contrite spirit. But why does Jesus go to Hosea to make this point? Because, okay, because in Hosea, you not only have people who are prioritizing mer- sacrifices over mercy, you've got priests who are on their way to making sacrifices, committing atrocities, denying justice to widows and orphans, killing people. Okay, it's not just that these were folks that had priorities out of whack. These were folks that were sinfully out of connection with God and their neighbor. No love for either of them. Jesus quotes this text because he also wants to say, look, some of you Pharisees, you may have your priorities out of line. You may simply think God wants sacrifices over mercy. But he says, I think some of you more sinisterly, you know that God wants mercy over sacrifice. But you're using your idea of God's priorities as a socially acceptable excuse for you to hate your neighbor and have nothing to do with these sort of outcasts of society. Jesus is saying, look, it's not only that your sacrifices are being over-prioritized, it's that they're worthless. 
because your heart is wicked. Your heart is far from me. I think that's why Jesus goes to Hosea, because that's the context in which we find that critique in Hosea. Okay, to sum it up, the Pharisees had their reasons for being the kind of doctors that didn't make house calls on the sick person's house. Okay, or to return to the initial illustration, for being the kind of pastors that never made pastoral visits to see prisoners who were social outcasts. They had their reasons for being that sort of person. Some thought God wanted doctors to be more concerned with cleanliness than patients. Others, more sinisterly, they just didn't give a care about patients. And they used this idea of God prioritizing sacrifices just as a ruse so they could go about doing precisely what they wanted to do. And Jesus says to both, you've got it all wrong. You have got it wrong. You don't know God because God prioritizes mercy, period. That's the trump card. God prioritizes mercy, no exceptions. Which then finally leads us to the end of the text, to the end of this little paragraph where Jesus returns to a self-evident answer. Look at the end of 13. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I don't think Jesus is being ironic here about righteous. No, Jesus hasn't come, just like doctors don't go to healthy people, Jesus hasn't come to deal with righteous people. He's saying, isn't it more likely that a fellow like me on a special commission from a merciful God, not least one like me who's been given the name Jesus because I'll save my people from my sins, Matthew 1, isn't it more likely that I'd be found with sinners than with already righteous people? Where would you expect to find a merciful, a representative from a merciful God? It's sort of like, I think, what we find in that little parable about uh, the sheep. 99 sheep in a pen, all safe, all in God's good providential care. That's a really good thing. That text doesn't stop there. That text says, no, God's heart is for that one sheep, the one that's wandered away, that one that needs mercy. God's heart is after that sheep. Wherever it is, he wants to find it and he won't rest until he does. Where would you expect to find Jesus, folks? Where, Pharisees, would you expect to find one like me, Jesus is saying, on a commission from a merciful God? Okay, that's the recap. That's the story. That's Matthew's account of his own call. It's pretty neat that he included it in his gospel. And I think there are a couple of things, Matthew, Jesus, God, wants us to reflect on from this text. Three, in fact, that I think are absolutely essential. Some of us need to respond to Jesus' right priority priorities by, number one, you need to embrace Jesus. Okay, some of you in this room this morning, you need to embrace Jesus. You don't follow him now. You're a stranger to God's mercy he is a foreigner, a stranger, a non... He's not your friend. And you say, how could it be any different? After all, look at what I've done, how I've lived. Look at what I've experienced. I make Jesus' dinner companions look like saints. And it's, it's to you that I want to address this. In fact, perhaps some well-meaning Christians, otherwise religious people, have simply compounded the problem 
treating you like you're some sort of communicable disease, a, a social pariah. Look, you're going to badly influence our kids. Uh, can, can you give us a little distance, like a 10-foot perimeter? We don't want anything to do with you. You're dirty. Stay away. You're not welcome here. Perhaps, seriously, perhaps for some of you, the remarks have been, are desperately worse. Desperately more painful and penetrating. And it's to you, it's to you, wherever it is you're sitting, why, for whatever reason, you've come to a church today, that Jesus has really two things he wants to say to you, both of which I think you'll find a little bit surprising, okay? First, Jesus wants to tell you, wherever it is you're sitting this morning, that he knows all about your sin, every last bit of it, all of it, everything, even that little hidden thing, yes, he has got his eye on that, knows it. But mercifully, he's got something else he wants to say to you. Look, he knows all about your sin, and he still wants to say he wants you to follow him. He wants you to follow him. He's calling you. He wants to come over. He wants to sit down, and he wants to eat dinner at your house. In fact, he wants, you to, he wants to tell you, why don't you invite all of your friends, all of your buds? They're welcome too. He knows what, you, what you've done. He knows what they've done. It grieves him. But be of good cheer, he tells you. I am an eminently qualified physician and I specialize in difficult cases. Look, wherever it is this morning that you're sitting, you are not far from God. Jesus is on mission from a merciful God and he wants you to follow him. He loves you. Embrace him this morning. Embrace this Jesus. There, there's nothing better you could do. No greater joy you could find. I would imagine, though, there's a, a larger group in this room that this second application would apply to. Some of us, and I've got to put it a little cautiously, but some of us, I think, need to imitate Jesus. And why I have to put it cautiously is that there, there just isn't a modern-day parallel to Pharisees to a Jesus with ritual purity codes and things like that. I'll admit it was hard for me to think of a modern analogy, a story in an opening illustration that could sort of capture what Jesus is after here. But I think we're on safe ground to go this far. I think we can conclude from this passage this morning. I think we should conclude from this passage this morning. That if you're concerned, folks, to avoid sin, if you're concerned to protect your children from sin, ends up making you avoid sinners altogether, then you don't have God's priorities right. If you're concerned to avoid sin, to maintain some measure of purity for whatever reason, even good reasons, remember they were misplaced priorities in certain instances, if your desire to avoid sin ends up making you avoid sinners altogether, then Jesus, God, is saying, you don't have my priorities right. In fact, it may reveal something much more sinister, as it did for the Pharisees. Let me, let me put it another way. A few lines later in Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus derisively called a friend of tax collectors and sinners, right? We love that phrase. And I think this 
little story probably contributed to that slur. So let me say this. I would suggest that if you aren't and you've never been at risk of being called a friend of sinners, if you aren't and you have never been, no one's going to call you or think about you as a friend of sinners, then that may again indicate that you don't have God's priorities right. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Let's imitate Jesus. I mean, the power's there, just like Matt prayed. It is in the gospel. He empowers you to live the sort of love-giving, mercy-bestowing life that he did. So let's imitate him by God's grace. Let's call on God, repent, and follow Jesus in this way. But I think overall, the best, the most appropriate response, the response that fits everyone in this room this morning is this. Some of us need to, all of us need to respond to Jesus' right priorities by thanking Jesus. Thank Jesus. Let's thank him. He knew what God prioritized and he loved what God loved. I mean, as the Messiah, Israel's representative, he succeeded where all others before him failed. Pharisees, not so good. Prophets didn't do it. Kings, David didn't do it. Judges, no. Jesus succeeded where all before him had failed. Now, in this case, we desperately needy sinners, heirs of those who shared this dinner with Jesus so many centuries ago, we find ourselves recipients of God's mercy, guests at his dinner table, precisely because Jesus was merciful. So, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being God's faithful servant and son. And thank you for entrusting this mission of mercy to your disciples and then to the countless others who followed in their train, to the ones that invited us to church or sat with you in a coffee shop and explained to you the gospel or who invited your kids to a kids program that would eventually lead you to hear the gospel. Jesus, thank you for loving what God loved and prioritizing what God prioritized. We are recipients of mercy because you were faithful. We sit at your table because you were a faithful son. Now, whichever response fits your particular situation this morning, whatever it is, I mean, God's Spirit's going to put it onto your heart. Know this, okay, know this, that God and His Son Jesus, they are full of mercy They're full of hope. They're full of healing. They are full of goodness. They are full of a heart of love for us this morning. They love, Jesus loves you. Come embrace him. Let's imitate him. And most of all, let's thank him together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving God and for loving us. Thank you for knowing what God loves and for living a life that demonstrated it. God, thank you that you are full of mercy towards us. You did not spare your own son, but freely gave him up for us all. And you will with him not deny us any good thing. God, we as your people, we as your people want to just come into your presence and thank you for Jesus. 
thank you. We love you. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.